Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. I am so excited to have Deborah Beck, Associate Professor in the Department of Classics, with me today. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about my own work, which is what I find usually happens when a terrific interviewer asks me questions that I haven't thought about before. I find out something new just from finding out what I think is the answer to those questions. Well, I hope you've set the bar high for me now, Deborah. So <laughs> let's let's hope this uh, is a terrific interview. Let's start with my goodness. So. Um, something in the water you were drinking uh, as a as a child, as a kid, and excited about things like Greek myth. Um, yeah, and then it led you to uh, finally getting a PhD. But I know there was a moment when you were thinking maybe biology as an undergrad. Yeah. But let's hear about your journey and then where you're at with your work today. Sure. So um, I don't remember before I knew how to read. I taught myself to read when I was three. Um, and my mother basically for the next 15 years, just constantly threw books at me to try to, you know, keep me entertained. Um, and, uh, one of the early books that she offered me that I loved were children's books of mythology. And I had one that was about Greek mythology and another one that was about Norse mythology. So I could have ended up as a scholar of Norwegian saga, which didn't happen. Um, and, you know, the same kind of thing happens now because I get tons and tons of students in my mythology class who are interested in the material because they have devoured and adored Percy Jackson. So I think the Greek myths have an enduring fascination for children, but at the same time, kind of the depths of the stories are something that you can return to again and again as an adult. So as a kid, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I just thought the stories were cool. Um, and I was fortunate to live in a town that had um, good language instruction in the public schools. So I started taking Latin when I was in ninth grade. Um, and then um, the 10th grade Latin teacher was really not very good. And I did it, disliked it enormously at the end of the year. I was like, well, I'm going to sign up for Latin three because the Latin three and four teacher was one of those, you know, famous teachers. That's like the most significant teacher in the life of everyone who ever steps, sets foot in their class. So I was like, all right, look, I'll try it. And if he's boring and I don't like it. I can just drop. And of course he was amazing. And um, the rest is history. In retrospect, thinking about where I ended up, that must have been an amazingly terrible teacher that I had in Latin too. If I I wasn't interested in the class. Anyway, um, I also had, you know, wonderful teachers in many other subjects. And like many, um, you know, young people who were just like to learn, I was interested in pretty much everything that I encountered in school. And so um, when I went to college, I thought, well, maybe I wanted to major in biology and maybe I wanted to major in classics. Uh, and I took a class relevant to each of those options when I was a freshman and I liked the, the classics course a lot more. So I majored in classics um, with the intention, well, intention. I had like, it wasn't even on my radar screen to be a professor when I was an undergraduate. I didn't know any professors. I barely even knew what that meant other than just like the people in front of me in my classrooms. I had no idea how you got to be such a person or why you might be interested in that. Um, I come from a family um, 
that is very committed to public service. And both my parents had worked in the public sector for their whole lives. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, do something in the public sector. And I don't know yet what that is. And maybe I'll get a master's in public health or I don't know something. Um, but then I wrote a senior uh, essay that about the Iliad that was an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, and I won a prize for it that I shared with a graduate student for their dissertation. Um, and to me, that was that made the prize, prize even more amazing. I was like, wow, they thought my work was comparable to a grad student. That is super cool. I, I found out afterwards that the grad students thought it was unfair, that that that, um, that should be an undergraduate prize and that they shouldn't have done that. And I thought it was awesome, was fine with me. Anyway, the experience of this sort of long form research into something that I really cared about really was sort of eye-opening, not because I suddenly said, oh, now I want to go to graduate school. I didn't. I went off to do other things for three years, but because that kind of planted a seed of a little bit of a sense of what it might mean um, to do this as a regular activity that basically, you know, lay dormant for a couple of years while I was in, working in Washington, um, doing various jobs related to child welfare services. But then I went to visit a friend of mine who had just started teaching at Swarthmore, and he introduced me to a friend of his who taught classics, who is another absolutely amazing teacher, and who had this very probing conversation with me about my own interests and, and so forth. At the time I had this conversation, I had really no interest in becoming a professor. But during the course of the conversation, he said to me, you're answering my questions like, like a teacher. And that really sort of flipped a switch in my, in my brain. And, and three months after that, I applied to graduate school. Um, and then I went, and here I am. Amazing. Yeah. And also testament to the significance of that one or two, you know, um, those people in our lives that um, kind of shifted the direction of our, our train, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, really significant and important. Um, tell me, though, so at Harvard, you are studying, you know, classics mm -hmm. and you become deeply interested in understanding how these homer others are shaping their stories their epic mm -hmm. poems in ways that connect with us emotionally right so um uh, my senior essay was also about that my senior essay was about um the tension between uh, how characters in the Iliad are devoted to their families and how they're devoted to fighting and how those come into conflict and how the poem treats that kind of conflict between those two solemn, supreme obligations and values as, as really one of the sort of pivot points of the whole story. Um, and basically that's what I went to graduate school to do more of is just to think about sort of what makes the feelings of these characters tick because the sort of light bulb moment for me as a senior in college, um, I read the last book of the Iliad in Greek um, with uh, a very, um, really a very interesting teacher in the sense that I like learned an enormous amount from some of the choices he made because I liked them. So for example, asking us to read the last book of the Iliad. And then there were other choices he made that I just thought were very misguided. And that was one of the things I said to this professor at Swarthmore that made him tell me that I was thinking like a teacher. I said, I don't understand why he assigned this particular thing that if I were trying to give somebody an overview of author X, that is not what I would have done. Anyway, um, 
reading book 24 of the of the Iliad, the last book of the poem in which Achilles, who's been um, who has killed Hector, the prince of Troy, and then refused to surrender the body for burial and instead keeps it in his camp and continues to mistreat it in various ways that are so disgraceful and inappropriate that even the gods are disgusted and send a messenger to him to say, excuse me, this is not okay. You may not do this. Um, and they also send Hermes to accompany the old father of Hector, Priam, to the Greek camp to um, ransom the corpse from Achilles so that they can bury it properly at Troy. Um, and I was reading this as a college senior, and I was just dumbfounded that this Greek poem in Greek about Greeks, the Greeks win the Trojan War. Nevertheless, the way the story is told and shaped completely fails if you don't buy into the grief of Priam over the death of his child. An elderly Trojan who's on the other side, who's not fighting, is important because he's a father, even though he's all these other things that you might imagine make him not sympathetic, not important, whatever. And I just was amazed by that way of thinking about your story. One of the ways that I talk a lot about it when I teach the Iliad um, in my in my undergraduate classes is there's a different version of the Trojan War in which the Trojans are essentially stormtroopers in the Star Wars movies. They're all faceless. They're all the same. We don't care about them. They're just those other guys. Um, and the Iliad is completely the opposite of that. The Iliad is very uh, focused on the equally sympathetic sorrow and bereavement and suffering of the Greeks and the Trojans. And, and a lot of my research since that senior essay has been about trying to understand how the poems tell a story that is shaped by emotion that evoke, that arouses the emotions of the audience. Um, uh, and, and then part I'm interested in that because these are such sort of large scale poems that it it might seem sort of counterintuitive that one of the most important features of their storytelling is this very immediate human appeal to individual people's feelings. Um, and, and partly because that's what makes them sort of enduringly appealing is everybody can relate to feelings about being a parent. Even if you're not a parent, you have a parent or you miss having a parent because you never had one. But that's a sort of universal human experience as being a child or being a parent and having feelings about that. So that even if we don't recognize from personal experience the specific details that happen to a particular parent or particular child, the way that those feelings are central, both for our reaction to characters on the Greek side and characters on the Trojan side, um, seems to me to be a very significant choice that the poem had made and also one of the things that makes the poem continue to be accessible and important and appealing for later for later readers speech direct speech direct quotation non-direct modes has become a real focal focus point for you and i imagine that i don't know um you know this obviously was something that was understudied but yet a key element in that emotion engagement. Yeah, so starting with Plato, actually, who has a lot of really perceptive and interesting things to say about Homer. Um, one of the distinctive features of the Homeric poems is the enormous proportion of them that consists of characters talking. 
where essentially the main narrator hands over the voice of the poem to a character. So rather than the narrator saying, you know, once upon a time, Joe and Schmo did whatever they did, speech hands over the story to Joe, who then says to Schmo, hey, let's go to the whatever. And so um, basically, since the beginning of literary criticism uh, and appreciation of the Homeric poems, they have been recognized and appreciated and kind of explored in part through the an unusually large amount of direct speech they have in comparison to other epics. So just by way of comparison, um, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey have somewhere around two thirds or three quarters of their narrative consists of direct speech. And Virgil's Aeneid, which is heavily influenced by the Homeric epics, it's more like a third. So it's a really big difference. Um, and, and, and ancient critics were very interested in that. I'm interested in it because the way characters talk, particularly in Homer, because the narrator tends to be fairly retiring and not want to tell you explicitly what you're supposed to think about things or feel about them. So characters, in, in, in comparison to the narrator, characters tend to be much more upfront about how they feel. And um, they use much more sort of explicitly judgmental uh, language, like, you know, they call each other names or, um, you know, they say, oh, this is terrible. I'm so sad about this, whatever. So a lot of the explicit emotion in the poem happens through the characters. And for a long time, people thought that that's all the emotion that there was and that the, that the Homeric narrator, because they don't explicitly talk about themselves or talk about how they think the uh, audience should react to things, that there is no information from the main narrator about those things. In fact, that's not true at all. Um, and there's a lot of information. It's just implicit from the main narrator about sort of emotional feelings, about shaping, about uh, subjective responses, both by the characters and by the reader to what's happening. And that's actually what my most recent book is about. So um, one of the also very distinctive features of the epic genre, more generally starting with Homer, but continuing um, for all the way through to, you know, Dante, the first epic that was written in a, a vernacular language rather than Latin. Um, to John Milton's very famous Paradise Lost that melds together Christian and classical ways of uh, talking about the world. Anyway, through all, throughout all of these epics, one of the distinguishing features that kind of puts a little sign on the poem's head that says, hello, I'm an epic, um, is the, what's called the epic simile, which is a kind of a little story of the form A is like B. So Achilles is, you know, fighting and he's very fierce. And it says, you know, just as the ocean wave towers over the terrified fish and then falls on them in the same way Achilles, you know, attacked the Trojans or something like that. And so these superficially unrelated stories appear regularly in these narrative similes. And those have an enormous amount of information of all, many different kinds that guides, shapes, arouses the emotions of the audience. Um, and so my first couple of books, I was interested in thinking about the emotional texture of Homeric poetry as it's created by speech, which is something that's been of interest to for to readers of Homer uh, for a long time. In my most recent book, I kind of pivoted not only to a different narrative technique that helps to portray and arouse emotion, but also to a broader canvas in terms of the book itself. So there are, it's about partly about Homer, but then it's also about Virgil, uh, his Aeneid, it's about Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is kind of this mythological grab bag that clearly wants at the same time to be an epic in the tradition of Homer and Virgil, but also to be doing very untraditional and 
and kind of surprising things with the epic genre. Um, and then also Apollonius's Jason and the Argonauts, which is a mythological story that people have heard of, but an author and a poem that is largely unknown outside of um, professional classics circles. So the book is about um, uh, how similes work in all of these different, in different poems, how they, not only how they create emotions, but also what kinds of emotions those are, which vary from poem to poem, depending on the specific themes and interests that are distinctive to each poem that, you know, is reflected in the kinds of scenes and emotions that the similes tend to depict. Yeah, really fascinating. Do you, in your research for this latest book, The Stories of Similes, um, I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but uh, was there anything, you know, advances in other areas like the cognitive sciences, for instance, that um, deepened an understanding of why we might engage more um, in and through the sh the shaping of a story that's using simile? Yes, absolutely. Um, so um, one of the, I, the book was informed substantially by sort of a kind of a cluster of interdisciplinary approaches called embodied cognition, which is work by literary theorists, by cognitive psychologists, by psycholinguistics people, by um, neurobiologists doing uh, fMRI scans on people, um, people from many different uh, disciplines who are working in their respective field to explore the idea that whereas, you know, for a long time, for most of, you know, intellectual history, at least in, um, you know, in the West, people had taken um, the physical body and the process of the mind as two different things, and perhaps even as two really opposite or different, very, not just different, but contrasting things. Um, and these different fields are showing that, in fact, the, the mind and the body are very deeply intertwined, and it's probably not even really sensible to talk about them as being different. And just to take one example, um, the neurobiologists with their fMRI machines have shown that um, there are neurons in the brain that if you're reading a story about somebody running, fire in the same way as if you're actually running. So there are lots of features of storytelling that essentially create a you are here kind of feeling, which are known collectively as immersive storytelling features. Um, and so this is a, it's a very powerful insight that is being developed from many different uh, perspectives in the, in the academic world. And one of the things that I found out in my book is that similes are these like bullion cubes of immersive storytelling. They're full of these features that cause that you are here feeling whether it's describing the space in which something happens, you know, the thing is high, the thing is low, the thing is next to this or, or behind that, um, describing physical sensations of hunger or cold uh, or water being wet, um, emotions of love, fear, pain, sorrow. Um, and they're just, that's what they are. These just like little moments where people are having these feelings and physical sensations that are not explicitly linked to the story beyond fairly sort of short and basic kinds of connections. And then it's up to the reader to kind of figure out how do all of those feelings and experiences um, help to tell the story, affect my reaction to the story and my understanding of the story. So yes, I absolutely did. Um, I try to write not by centering the scholarship that helps us to understand that, but rather to say, okay, these are the people who talked about that 
process of understanding this scholarly insight. So if you want to read about the scholarly insight itself, that go over and read these people, what I want to do is apply that scholarly insight in a way that's appealing and engaging for someone who's interested in what that insight produces, but may or may not be interested in the process by which we understand what the scholarly framework itself looks like and how, how we got there. So, you know, I provided sort of a scholarly apparatus for people who want to know that, but that's not really the main focus of the book. The main focus of the book is with that kind of framework, what do we see in similes and epic narrative that we didn't see before? Yeah, really fascinating um, kind of technologies of storytelling as kind of you know, advanced as, um, you know, more deeply understood in and through research on like the mirror neuron system and so mm -hmm. on, right? Yep, um, exactly. Really amazing, really amazing. Um, Thank uh, you. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of the challenges, um, at least for me in the classroom is to bring my students around to form. And I know that sounds mm -hmm. kind of old fashioned, but um, it's exactly the kinds of things that you're excited and interested in that also excite us or me and others. You know, how do certain kinds of technologies of storytelling, if we're gonna call them that, uh, you know, shape the narrative. And, you know, the students, I think, you know, tend to come to me really good at character and thematic analysis, but they're not so good at the kind of how are those, you know, shaped and and why are we interested, even though we've seen this theme, this character a million times before, right? Mm -hmm. Really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I, I definitely talk to students a lot about form. Um, I, I think they're kind of bemused, for example, when I tell my mythology students that if I assign them books one and three to read, I expect them to know like what percentage of the whole poem they read. And obviously book one is at the beginning, but where is book three in relation to the whole thing? Um, one of the skills that I work with my students on in any class, whether we're reading a text in the original Greek or we're reading it in English translation is it's equally important what is being said and how it's being said. Um, and one of the things that's important for how something is being said is the sequence in which something is said. And that simply placing two things next to each other affects the meaning. And that is absolutely one of the ways that similes mean things is simply by placing two apparently unrelated things next to each other, you are inviting the reader to make that connection. But at the same time, you're not really making it possible to say there's definitely this one connection that's correct and there no, there aren't any other possible connections to be made. And that combination of kind of obviousness and indeterminacy is one of the things that makes similes so distinctive and so memorable and so fun, really. Um, I mean, in, in there's, there's also a gigantic body of research in most of the same disciplines that I mentioned in connection with embodied cognition uh, about the uh, comprehension of similes and also the comprehension of metaphor. So whereas a simile is something of the form A is like B, it's an explicit comparison of two things that are essentially equated, they're parallel, no, neither one is, is subordinate to the other one. A metaphor is an implied comparison where you say something like, you know, um, fear bloomed in his heart where you're using a verb bloom that is normally used for flowers to talk about a feeling. Um, and so then there's this very sort of complex network of 
comparisons that underlie a metaphor like fear bloomed in his heart. Um, and because those are implicit, there was for a long time the idea that similes were easier because they were explicit. Um, and one of the, my favorite things that I read was this very cogent statement of the foolhardiness of confusing explicit with straightforward. Um, that the simile terms are explicit, but they are by no means straightforward. And so they present a pretty accessible invitation to the reader. And the process of accepting that invitation can be pretty much as extensive and complicated as the abilities of the reader will accommodate. So for example, the similes in Virgil's Aeneid uh, are often extremely rich and subtle allusions to earlier Homeric similes. And what a particular simile means in the context is not simply a comparison between the simile story and the mythological story to which it's been uh, juxtaposed, but also a comparison of the Virgilian context with the Homeric context that's being alluded to. And you're expected, if you're Virgil's very knowledgeable and erudite original reader, to know those allusions and to bring those into your interpretation. But at the same time, I think it's a complete misunderstanding to imagine that if you can't do that, you're therefore a failed reader of the Aeneid. Um, and I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this in recent years, about this kind of spectrum of interpretation that applies to highly allusive forms of popular art, um, not only Virgil's Aeneid, but also um, some of the Greek tragedy that I work on. And, and, and I, I had a particularly entertaining experience of this in a very personal way, because when I was working on a paper about uh, an, an odyssey illusion in a, in a play of, of Aeschylus, my husband and I went to see um, the first of the Rocky spinoffs that starred Michael B. Jordan, because we love Michael B. Jordan from Friday Night Lights. And we were like, oh, yay, let's go see this. We knew nothing whatsoever about Rocky at all. So we missed all the Rocky illusions in the movie. Of course, there were a bazillion of those. We didn't know what any of them were, you know, when we were Googling everything in the car on the way home. But we loved the movie anyway. We didn't care that we didn't know what any of the illusions meant. Um, and that was a really good, you know, sort of personal experience of being a bad audience member, bad in the sense of not informed of the illusions that the ideal, well, one version of, a, of the audience was expected to have. We didn't have that and we didn't care at all. And I am fairly certain that a similar kind of, you know, different kinds of audiences are fine, would also have worked um, for these highly elusive post-Homeric epics that assume as part of their um, interpretive apparatus that the reader knows something about the earlier epics uh, to which they allude. You, it's definitely more fun if you know about those earlier illusions, but are you going to completely miss the point of the poem if you don't know about those illusions? No, you're not at all. Wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's the kind of the ideal audience reader and then the multiple kind of, you know, further ideal audiences, right. That the, that the story also includes or invites, um, really amazing. In your intro to classical mythology, you explicitly state, look, I'm going to be, you know, we're going to be looking at how different authors tell their myths and stories and how genre affects the way a story is told um, in different media, cultures, time periods. Are there um, some examples of, um, you know, some of these maybe um, 
in contemporary times? Or I'll, I'll let you kind of take this question wherever you'd like to go with it. So um, different, how different genres affect. Okay, so um, let me, one of the things that I, I fantasize about doing in the ideal universe in which I have enough time to teach whatever I want to teach, which doesn't exist at all, um, because my department is a little bit understaffed. And so by the time we teach all of our required courses that we need in order to run our syllabus, there's very little left over for people to teach fun things that they think of. Um, but one of the classes I'd love to teach sometime or other is a course on the Trojan War, just myths of the Trojan War. I do have a colleague who teaches a class about the Trojan War as a first year seminar, but I would like to teach one as like an upper level class um, where we read different stories about the Trojan War from different, from Greeks and from Romans, from epic and from tragedy. Um, so just to take some sort of basic differences between epic and tragedy, which are the two genres that I, I work with the most, Epic has a, an omniscient third-person narrator who sort of tells you the story and then brings forward different characters who say things and whatever. But it's the narrator who tells you about the similes. The characters don't actually know. For example, Achilles doesn't know that he's being compared to an ocean wave. That's only something between the narrator and the audience. And the characters don't know anything about those. Now, occasionally, characters put them in their own speeches. But for the most part, similes are a feature of the narrator telling a story to you the audience, and they're not something that the characters, as they're having these experiences, know anything about. There is no person like that in tragedy. Tragedy is only characters talking. So there is no kind of overarching voice that's organizing the story and telling you, even implicitly, like what to think about what's going on. You just have to kind of take the different perspectives of the people telling you things and, and just integrate them in your own way into you know, your understanding of what happened to the people and so forth. So, um, you know, some things remain the same, no matter what the genre is, like who is given the opportunity to speak has a huge effect on how the story looks. So the Iliad, for example, ends with the laments of three Trojan women over the corpse of Hector. And there's been a lot of interest and a lot of scholarship in how that foregrounds the experience of non-combatants, it foregrounds the experience of the defeated at the moment when the story is coming to an end. Euripides achieves a somewhat comparable effect in writing plays that are exclusively populated by Trojan women. Well, they're, you know, sort of Greeks who wander onto the stage to enslave people or whatever, but basically Euripides writes plays in which the Trojan women are lamenting their fate. Um, but the absence of a narrator kind of tying all that together um, changes the story. You're left with just the kind of bald misery of the character's own experiences. And there's no presence in the story to kind of put those together into some kind of unity. That's your job as a member of the audience, which is not to say that it's not your job if you're, if you're reading an epic. It is. But you have some help from the narrator in the way that you don't. If you're reading, uh, if you're reading a tragedy, um, so I'm not sure did that answer your question or not really. No, that was amazing, beautiful. Uh, ma makes absolute sense to me. Um, and yeah, that we have to be mindful of choices and you know it's choices of voice and perspective because it does it does impact or it does shift the direction of possibility for the story itself. Um, no, it absolutely does. And just a sort of silly note on that general subject. 
Uh, I use a lot more similes in my own speech and writing since I've been writing this book than I did before. And one of my colleagues, I was in a seminar a few years ago on narrative across the disciplines at UT, which was just fantastic. You know, just a bunch of colleagues who were doing various kinds of scholarly work that had to do somehow with narrative. Um, and one of my colleagues said to me uh, after I gave my presentation, she said, Deborah, you use a lot of similes. And I think I maybe hadn't noticed up until that point that I did, but it's definitely true. Um, I, I do use a lot of similes because, you know, having studied them, I feel like I've gained a huge appreciation for what they bring to language. And one of the reasons that I was interested in them is that even though in epic poetry, they appear in very elaborate form where they're telling a little story, you know, a small, a simile of the form A is like B, you know, the rising sun burns me like a hot curling iron or whatever. Those are just a very normal feature of people's conversations. And so when you're studying similes in an epic poem, you also can then link that as a communication act with hugely varied uh, other things where, you know, people study similes in, for example, political speeches or just ordinary conversation. And those all have sort of a basic kinship where you're using a simile to offer an interpretation, to involve the audience. They have this very sort of, you know, consistent set of qualities and functions across a dizzyingly broad variety of speech and communication contexts. And that's one of the things that I liked about it is that one of the things that I really want to try to do in both my research and my teaching is to demystify this literature so that people don't feel like you have to have a PhD to read Homer or to read Virgil or to understand what they're talking about. I mean, that's part of the reason, for example, that I'm interested in um, dethroning this ideal reader as the only possible reader. You know, I talk to my students about that a lot. It's fine if you don't understand everything. The goal is not to understand everything. And one of the ways I think to sort of normalize and as it were, domesticate, make accessible these very wordy and sometimes intimidating poems from these earlier cultures is to link the way they tell their stories with the things normal people do all the time when they want to make a point in a certain way. Um, and, and so that was absolutely one of the reasons that I, I'm interested both in direct speech, which because, of course, telling somebody what somebody else said is something everybody does all the time. Um, but similes the same. These are just things that people do. And there are sort of elaborate stylized versions of them in these poems, but they're not at all, you know, sort of unrecognizable things. They're just normal things that people do when they talk to each other that are used in these, you know, stylized ways in, in poetry. So thinking of poetry as stylized speech um, can make it a little bit less upsetting for people to try to imagine themselves reading it. Um, and and I think it really does help a lot to, to make people less upset about how challenging it is to just also to, to validate that, to just say, this is very unfamiliar um, especially at a time when people don't read as much as they used to. I mean, some people do, but a lot of people don't. This is going to feel forbidding at first, you know, and over and over again, when I, when I teach my mythology class, which has a lot of reading of primary sources, and for many of the students in the class is the only course they're ever going to take in the humanities at all. So for them, the kinds of expectations of humanities reading, they're just like, what is this? And what are you doing to me? Um, and I've been teaching a course since 2011 and every year, every year in my course evaluations, the students say, I was intimidated by the reading list at first, but Professor Beck was very helpful in kind of helping me not to mind that. And by the end, I really felt like I could do it and I understood what I was doing and I enjoyed it. 
So, you know, I feel like part of my job is exactly that, is to kind of break down these barriers that people feel between themselves and these very, um, you know, sort of superficially intimidating, but enormously relevant stories from classical antiquity. That's another thing my students say all the time is, I thought these were just going to be fun stories. And it turned out they were so meaningful and relevant. And I learned so much about just how to be a person living in the world from these stories, because the characters encounter the same kinds of problems that people encounter all the time. How do we live together in groups with people with whom we disagree? Um, What do we do when we have conflicting obligations to our families and to our communities, and there's no way to discharge all of those obligations? How do we decide what not to do? Um, And uh, I think students really are drawn in by the combination of sort of entertainment, because the stories are certainly, you know, a lot more entertaining than our own personal experience of conflicts between personal obligations and, and community obligations. But um, they're, they're very entertaining and they're much sort of their larger scale than the experiences we have in our own daily lives. But the basic human experiences and dilemmas that characters experience in mythology, including gods, not just mortal characters, are very much the same kinds of things, not only that ancient characters encounter, but that modern people encounter. So that if I can help the students get past their initial anxiety about the amount of reading I'm asking them to do, the difficulty of the vocabulary, the unfamiliarity of the forms and so forth. And I just give them the support to say, the goal is not to understand everything right away. Just stick with it and you will get it. Really, most almost everyone does stick with it, does get it and gets to the end of the class and says, wow, I didn't think I could do this when I started, but I actually did it. And I learned a lot and I'm so glad I stuck with it. So, you know, I hope that that my re- my research is also, you know, doing that um, to a more sort of specialist audience. But, you know, as in the last several years, especially, I've really striven to write, even though I'm writing about specialized scholarly subjects, to write about it in a way that's accessible and that's interesting to people who aren't specialists or aren't scholars. So the most important of those for me is my undergraduate students who, you know, are often rightfully disgusted and demoralized by how bad a lot of academic writing is as writing. You know, and I imagine my own undergraduates as the ideal audience for what I'm reading. And I, you know, if I look at something I've written and I think a student would be annoyed or disgusted or confused, if I ask them to read this, then I did it wrong and I need to try again. I regularly give um, advanced classes um, and graduate classes, drafts of my work to read, partly to help them get a sense of what work in progress looks like and also as a good sort of test opportunity for me to see that I'm writing in the accessible style that I want to write. So, for example, I was teaching a class this spring on um, Apollonius, one of the authors in in my forthcoming book. I gave the class my draft chapter on Apollonius. I said, could you understand this? And they said, yes, we totally understood it and it made sense and we liked it. Yay, everybody wins. Um, so, so, you know, I do a lot of things where the goal is to talk to people who aren't specialists, not only my teaching, but also the public facing opinion writing that I do mostly in Texas newspapers, but also sometimes in national publications. And I really want to do as much as I can to make the voice I use for my scholarly writing as close to that accessible, inviting, straightforward voice as I can. Absolutely, yes. Um your public facing writing, uh, your students, right? Um, especially kind of a focus of that, not surprising given how much you are tuned in and, and um, very involved in making sure that the students are, are learning and growing. 
Um, tell me about this latest one. New grads, pandemic struggles offer valuable lessons on failure and this failing effectively, mm-hmm. failing effectively. Yeah. Um, so I think people treat failure as something avoidable or embarrassing or bad. And I think that's nonsense. I mean, you can't learn to do something new without failing at it some of the time. Um, you know, just to take a one a personal example, the first time I teach a new course, I always goof up a bunch of stuff and I make notes to myself about what went wrong and why I think it was bad and what should I do differently. Um, and I try to model with my students, you know, when I make mistakes, they correct me and I say, thank you. And then I fix it and we go on. Um, and I want to, I want to sort of create for them the idea that learning entails failure. We can't learn without failing. And the question isn't, am I going to fail? You are, but how am I going to respond when I fail? Am I going to be embarrassed? Am I going to be defensive? Or am I going to say, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn how to do this better. Um, and, you know, in a sort of, it also tells us indirectly what it is that we care about. Cause we never say we failed at things we don't care about. You know, we just say we didn't do a good job or I'm bad at this or whatever. We only fail, which sounds like a very judgmental kind of thing to say, at things where we really want to do a good job. So if you want to, if you say that you failed at something, that tells you right there that you care about doing well at it. And that's also important information. What is it that's important to me? What should I be trying to do a good job at? Um, And I think that's one of the most important things that I do in the classroom is model effective failure for students where, you know, making, sometimes failing is just being wrong, um, you know, and I make a mistake and, and somebody says, well, what about such and such? And, and then we have a, you know, I correct it or I say, I don't know the answer. I'll look it up and tell you tomorrow. Students don't care if you're wrong occasionally or if you don't know things. What they care about is that you're a reliable source of information. Um, and if you say to them, I don't know, And you show them in the way you say that, that that's a perfectly normal way to answer a question to which you don't know the answer. And then you come back the next day and you say, well, I looked it up in these different places and this is what I found out. It's going to make a huge impression on them that you just were very forthright about saying you don't know. And then and then you show them what to do next instead of just like, you know, being embarrassed or trying to pretend you do know something. What do you do when you don't know something? How do you respond to that? When something doesn't go the way you wanted, how do you respond to that? So, I, you know, in my advanced classes, I at the end of the class, I ask the students what, what went well here and what didn't go so well. And then when I make adjustments based on what they didn't like about it, I tell the next class who gets the benefit of that, that I made whatever some specific change because the previous class told me that that was not working and asked me to do it differently so that I give them an example of someone who is responding to input is changing their mind in response to new data um, and is making mistakes and doing a bad job with a sense of authority. Um, I think that's one of the biggest concerns people have is that being wrong is, is is incompatible with having authority. And that is absolutely not true. An authority figure who will admit that they're wrong and apologize or fix it as appropriate um, an apology is not necessary if all you did was be wrong. It is good to apologize if you needlessly inconvenienced other people because you were wrong, but that's usually not the case. People are desperate for models of how to not be perfect. And, and I try really hard to provide that 
And especially in the pandemic, when everyone is unavoidably so much less perfect than usual, and when teachers in particular failed over and over and over again in front of our students using unfamiliar technologies, overhauling our classes and, you know, at, on the, at the drop of our hat to try to deliver them in new formats that we didn't really understand. Inevitably, things didn't go well. Our technology died in the middle of class. All kinds of things happened. And very clearly there, there was no option not to fail. Your option was, am I going to make this a teachable moment? Am I going to make this an opportunity for students to see that being wrong and failing is not the end of the world, but it's how we get better at things? Or am I going to be angry and defensive and make everybody uncomfortable? Um, so so that's, that's what I mean by failing effectively, learning from what didn't go well um, and, and taking it in your stride and figuring out what does the failure tell you about what you want to do next. Uh, an inspiration and yes, absolutely um, going to take kind of charge from that failing effectively um, and live it myself. Let me ask you as we wind this down, what is on the, you know, Deborah, on your proverbial nightstand for reading? Um, I know you like reading mystery novels. Yeah. I also know that you just submitted your The Stories of Similes. Um, so I know there was a lot that was, you know, going into that, but yeah, what are you, what are you reading? What's exciting to you right now? Well, that's a great question. It's also a little bit embarrassing. Um, I am so exhausted from the demands of two years of pandemic teaching that my reading material is pretty low impact. Um, so I recently tore through, um, a mystery series written by a mother and, and son duo who go by the pen name of Charles Todd. And their, their, their detective is, is a British police inspector named Ian Rutledge, who is a severely uh, PTSD um, a veteran of World War I. And he, uh, he hears voices belonging to one of his own soldiers whom he was forced to execute because he refused to obey a direct order on the battlefield. And so he had to court-martial him and, and execute him. And he's so traumatized by that, that he hears the voice of this dead uh, soldier in his head all through the series. Um, I, I was fascinated by the very detailed way that the books talk about the process of a traumatized country recovering from a cataclysmic event, which was in this case, World War II. But as our country is trying to kind of write itself um, as the pandemic enters a less, you know, sort of crisis feeling phase, I think there are some similarities of a country sort of reeling from years of just extreme nonstop trauma and loss. Um, and for me also, and it was a little bit sort of sobering to realize this, I am so tired. I am so drained from the pastoral care of the students I have taught. I taught 500 people during the pandemic. I would say at a conservative estimate, a third of them had some kind of unusual personal need or crisis or suffering because of the pandemic. And the human imperative to respond to those students has exhausted me so profoundly that I actually kind of identified with this PTSD veteran. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying I have PTSD at all. And I am not comparing my sufferings to those of, of either this particular fictional character or to the nation of Britain in the years after World War I. But the fact that that 
man suffering felt to me like a useful way to process the experience of trying to care for these students during the pandemic was a very sobering realization for me. So I just gobbled those all down, partly because I I loved the sense of place and time, but partly because I really sort of deeply resonated with the way they portray um, an exhausted and traumatized man in a traumatized society after this period of cataclysm and trying to figure out what comes next. Wow. Deborah, this has been quite a journey. I (laughs) have myself learned so much and I am so, you know, this so important for us to reach back and think carefully about um, how authors shape their stories um, and why genre matters in that. Um, also, just a confession, I my first undergraduate paper at Berkeley, my thesis statement, which earned me a D, um, was Achilles is the best war hero ever. Oh, wow. Good for you. Okay. Yeah, I can see that would have not really won you the undying admiration of your professor. Um, Well, I mean, part of the, I thank you so much for that kind summation. I think part of the reason I do what I do is that each one of us is the teller of our own story and thinking about how professional storytellers do it can help us tell our own stories just as people. And especially again, going back to the pandemic, one of the ways that we kind of reintegrate ourselves after these shattering couple of years is by telling our stories and hearing other people's and, and we're part of a, Telling a story is one of the most fundamental human imperatives that there is. That's what makes us human is telling a story and hearing other people's stories in turn. And I want to help people be the best possible humans that they can by helping them to be good storytellers, good consumers of the stories of others, um, whether it's in my research or my teaching or, or my public facing writing. So, so thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about storytelling. Um, and, and I hope some of your listeners will, will, crack a book and some of the stories that we've been talking about. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.